This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And there is a lot to talk about aside from COVID-19, though I suppose we will get to that too. This weekend, as expected, Ontario Liberals elected former Transport Minister Stephen Del Duca as their leader. Does this change the political landscape at Queen's Park, where he does not hold a seat, by the way? And there was uh, an interesting uh, and unexpected, at least to me, person coming up at that Liberal convention. We'll talk about her in a moment, so let's start there. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I would like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, as well as Charles Bird, Managing Partner of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello there. Good afternoon. Okay, well, Charles, uh, you were at the Liberal Convention on Saturday. As were you. As I was, too, and uh, it, there were no surprises there, No, it I was, say. it was a terrific weekend. Uh, 3,000 Liberal delegates and alternates, uh, more in attendance than was the case at the leadership in 2013. Um, Stephen Del Duca, who I've known for a long time, and by way of uh, uh, being transparent, I was uh, an early supporter of his. Uh, he won on the first ballot with nearly 60% of the vote, and Liberals emerged from that convention feeling very energized about uh, our prospects going forward, which is uh, a far cry from how things were feeling about a year ago when it was uh, sort of doom and gloom pervaded. But I think Stevens injected a real jolt of energy into the party, and uh, we look forward to the next election with great optimism. Do you uh, agree with that? I mean, uh, it was interesting, as always, there were people from the op- from the other parties at the convention. Uh, I talked to Paul Calandra yesterday, but he was there with this kind of jokey pool party thing, because as we know, Del Duca is having this problem about a pool in his backyard that back is onto the Oak Ridge's moraine that, that he seems to be building without a permit. So that was just a, a, a cheeky thing. But but it seemed like the conservatives kind of had their answer saying they're, they're saying uh, we can't afford to win with Del Duca. You know, the, the word play, is he going to be able to shake off, you know, the win government? Well, I think that's his biggest challenge. And I would say that, you know, with respect to Paul Calandra and that very funny thing about, you know, inviting the media to a media uh, a conference uh, by, by virtue saying, come to a pool party, right. I thought it was clever by by half. Um, but I also think that all all parties do that, you know, in, in our leadership contests, be it federally or, or provincially, the liberals will implant people there that will, you know, that will shake things up or try to make things funny uh, uh, and try to undercut some of the things. And that, that happens. That's part of the leadership democratic process. And that's all fun and 
games. But the one thing I think that was obviously a foregone conclusion was the fact that everybody under the sun knew that Stephen Del Duca was going to be the leader of the Liberal Party, which also gave the Conservatives uh, a chance to, to sort of build their case against him because they knew that he was going to win. So there was no surprises. Um, and, and quite frankly, I think the biggest challenge that Stephen faces is the fact that he was literally the right-hand person to, to Kathleen Wynne. So if you as an Ontarian um, voted against Kathleen Wynne in the last election because of the mismanagement of the Liberals and, and the financial disarray that they've caused this province, you know, it's, it, it, you, it's, it's easy to make the connection that, well, as a senior minister, as a senior member of cabinet, Stephen also had some responsibilities in that, in that place. So it's going to be hard for him to kind of, you know, entangle himself from that. And, and it'll be one thing that the Conservatives will continually do over the last little while, the next little while, is to sort of make sure that connection continues. And uh, interesting, Karen, so he was uh, criticized by the Auditor General for putting some uh, transit stops in his writing where the Auditor General said that they were not necessary and, and spending money. And he said he stands that by that decision because he thought that's where it would be needed in the future. So what do you think of that? Is that something that will stick to him? I don't. I don't think so. I, I think that uh, in the next couple of years, he has a chance to redefine what the liberal message is, and himself. And these are scandals that are sticking to him now because there's nothing else to talk about. To be candid, yeah. um, he hasn't done anything. He doesn't have a seat. He's. Um, he know, doesn't have a job. Actually, well, he, he now has, has a, a job, job but, but he hasn't worked since he was defeated. Right. And so I, I think that the next. I think the next twelve months will be telling for him and the Liberals if he can actually craft out a message and become a, a part of the political discourse that currently is, you know, I think right now all about the Ford government and there is no opposition. And so if, if he can actually create that level of opposition, I think it will turn the channel on some of those other things that have been dogging him to date. Charles, do you think you agree? Um, I think the Ford government will have its own problems and they can try as they might to paint Stephen Del Duca as, um, as uh, a product of the Wynn government. I mean, portraying him as the right-hand person to Kathleen Wynn is a bit rich. I mean, Kathleen Wynn's deputy premier was um, Deb Matthews from London. Um, but I think the more important thing is the ideas that Stephen's able to bring forward in terms of renewal of the party and also, you know, what are the policies that are going to work for Ontarians besides obviously reversing a number of the disastrous cuts that the Ford government has introduced. And, you know, one such idea that, was that Stephen brought forward earlier this year was the notion of cutting transit prices by half across the province except for that one hour um, in the morning and the afternoon when, when transit is at its busiest. This would constitute a huge savings for a lot of Ontarians. It would mean that people would adjust their time of taking transit uh, accordingly. And um, more than anything, it gets cars off the road and gets more people taking transit, as, as we hope they will, because that has a ton of positive benefits for the environment and for the economy. I find what's funny, though, is that it's okay for the liberals to sort of equate anybody that is a conservative leader to Mike Harris or to Stephen Harper uh, when it's, you know, 10, 15 years ago in the case of Mike Harris as the premier. Um, but when someone says, you know, legitimately in the last election campaign, which is a year and a half ago, that Stephen Del Duca was attached to Kathleen Wynne and the Kathleen Wynne government, uh, you know, that that's not, not the case. But I do think that 
you know, there is a chance for the liberals, and nobody should ever underestimate the liberal brand. The liberal brand is always fairly strong, and they always they pull high. You know, and even now, without a leader, they were pulling high, as we saw with Prime Minister Trudeau when he came from third place to win government. Uh, nothing's to say that Stephen Del Duca can't mount a good campaign over the course of the next two and a half years, uh, and and define himself, as Karen said, and and be able to build a team. He's got some time. There's no rush. I think he's right to say that he doesn't have to get into the legislature. There's no rush to get in there. There's He's not going to cause any. He's not going to cause the party to get official party status by going in there. So I think spending the next two years, literally going out and and you know trying to get the candidates that he wants, he's he's guaranteed some sort of candidate parity, uh, gender parity for for the candidacies, and that's a that's a huge task to to uh, have to fulfill. So I think he's got a huge challenge ahead of him, um, but there's a huge debt. Um, they didn't get a lot of bang out of the convention, and I, we, we talked about that in the previous shows where the lack of this the leadership race going into and at the convention uh, really was anticlimactic. People were like, oh, Stephen won press conference, and then everybody went home. And, and there, there were people who were there in the morning and there for his speech and who, who left because... Yeah. You know, yeah. there's so nothing new they there. voted, they left. left. So I think yeah. they missed an opportunity there because leadership conventions really are an opportunity for any party to kind of showcase their, their leader and, and that kind of stuff. But I do agree with Charles with one thing. I think that there was, because he won so overwhelmingly and because everybody, including the candidates themselves who were running against him, knew that he was going to win, um, there was that unity afterwards that I think uh, created at some level of, of, of positive news coverage. Okay, I want to talk about, so this was a surprise to me, uh, a woman named Kate Graham came in third. She beat out Mitzi Hunter, who was the former education minister with a pretty high profile, I think. She's 35 years old. She comes from London. She ran while she's pregnant out of nowhere. And all these people supporting him, her. her. Uh, yeah, her. You know, uh, people calling her a breath of fresh air. She she actually, even in her speech, uh, she used a profanity. And, uh, there were tweets saying, oh, I think that's the first time I heard a profanity in a, in a leadership speech. What do you make of that, Karen? Well, I, I think it's actually exciting and actually it could speak to the success of the liberal renewal. Because if, if um, you know, there's a sense that um, the current leader can't shake the baggage of the Liberal Party, then having new blood in, refreshing, that is speaking to the, the, uh, another demographic, I, I think it's great. And so, uh, good for her. <laughs> I hadn't heard of her until now, so now I'll be watching. <laughs> Charles? Uh, it's interesting that the voting for delegates took place over two days. Um, so, so you had chunks of the province voting on day one and chunks of the province voting on day two, including the GTA on day two. And at the end of day one's voting, Kate was in a very strong second. And it was really only the GTA that managed to propel Michael Coteau just past her. Um, so for someone who has not held elected office before, she she's done a terrific job of making herself known, injecting great ideas into um, the party into the leadership contest. Uh, she's from London. She's a progressive. She ran uh, for the Liberal Party in 2018, was not successful, but really in many respects represents the, the, the future not only of the Liberal Party, but of politics in this province and in this country, which is younger, more female, and very forward-thinking. And she seemed to have some pretty high-profile supporters. I mean, I ran into uh, longtime city councillor Shelley, Shelley Carroll there when she was supporting her, yeah. and obviously knowing that she wasn't going to win. Yeah. And, and I believe the aforementioned Deb Matthews is supporting 
supported her as well because from yeah. the same same region. Um, but I think you know this is a risk. I think with candidates that are not known jumping into a leadership race, especially those that haven't had a seat in the in the House or legislature or in the parliament or, or whatever the body is. And I'm talking about even the U.S. perspective because there was a huge amount of of, of of Democratic candidates who were not known, but yet made names for themselves. Peter, Peter Buttigieg being one, and of course, and, and some of the other ones that, that Kamala were, Harris. Uh, Kamala Harris. You know, they were senators, but you know, he was yeah. a mayor from from yeah. you know it, from uh, from Indiana, who who now is propelled to be probably a cabinet minister if the Democrats win the next election. But with with Kate Graham, that's an example of somebody who lost her seat, lost her, lost an election, and then propelled herself to run for liberal leadership um, as a hopeful. And I think a lot of people, including me, were saying, "Who is this person, and why would she be doing this?" But to her credit, she was able to leverage that into something that will ultimately get her probably another seat, another chance at running for for office, and maybe as an MPP or uh, if the Liberals do win, uh, some level of, of high. So there's a risk in that. And the, but the flip side is that if you do that and you're not known and you don't and you and you perform miserably, then you actually are in worse shape than you were going into the race. So there is that kind of that risk that one takes. Well, so she's certainly more known, and it, it brings to mind in the conservative race, uh, Marilyn Gladue. Mm-hmm. Well, in Marilyn Gladue's case, you know, I think there was a lot of people that were raising their eyebrows and saying, you know, Marilyn Gladue, but she, she is a, an accomplished woman, uh, MP, who, you know, ran for re-election, won, uh, and uh, has, you know, has every right to be able to do that. Now, again, it's early days, but we'll see what how she performs in the debates that are coming up. Uh, and, and also Leslie Lewis, you know, another one who nobody knew prior to this and who's making a bit of a name for herself because she's already beaten one or two thresholds to get to the position where she's in now. And if she is, continues to, to do that and do well, she may very well be in the debate uh, that the party has, in, I believe, in April. So it, it'll be it'll be seen as we'll see how they uh, perform against Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, who are the two frontrunners. Before we uh, move on to another topic, one of the things that people brought up was the personality issue. And uh, interesting in in his speech, Del Duca said, uh, oh, I, f- "I forget his exact words, but you know, he said something like, people say I'm not charismatic.'" There's a reason for that. But there was this contrast. So you've got um, Bland, which has been known to work very well for Ontario premiers on the one side, and you have Doug Ford on the other, who's combative. How do you think that might play out in a contest? Uh, you know, I think that um, it's, politics is about authenticity. And so the reason it works for Ford is because that is who he is. He doesn't, he's not a calm, mild-mannered person who puts it on before the mic. Like, he's, he is who he is. And so if the same thing holds true for uh, Stephen Del Duca, then, you know, he'll be bland throughout a crisis. He'll be bland uh, in the opposition. He'll be bland as he delivers his message. And he'll have to figure out a way to still connect with voters. And if he can do that, it would be like Stephen Harper and the way that he did that. It took time for people to warm up to him. But once they did, they were very loyal. And since there, he seems to have a following within the party already, it, it, I don't think being bland necessarily is a disadvantage as long as it, um, it, it's authentic and it's who you are. And, and it's also the, how you respond to, to the issues at hand. Yeah, if bland means better health care and smaller class sizes and means a meaningful plan for rural Ontario and an urban agenda, um, then give me bland, give me bland through and through. And I'm, I, I'm reminded of when, when the Conservatives were in power from 1943 to 1985 continuously. 
um, Bland definitely worked. Well, and, yeah. And the Liberals Brampton elected. And Bill. And in 1982, the Liberal Party in Ontario elected David Peterson, and he was beyond Bland. I mean, he was, he he was, I think, forty something, and he might as well have been a uh, hundred and something because he was just he was just came across as being very very stodgy. He underwent a very fundamental makeover. And it new occurs, glasses. New, well, he, he he got rid yeah. of the glasses. He got the signature red tie. He started jogging. He lost a few pounds. Uh, got a f- couple nice suits. And it occurs to me that there's a lot of potential for for Stephen not to take anything away from uh, his current look, as we call him the yeah. Brad, but, but I think, the but, Brad but, Pitt of right. Ontario. But I, I think that's when you start to, you step away from your authenticity. And certainly, it means personally speaking. I know when I ran for mayor, I it was like you got to cut your hair, you got to dress differently, you got to do this and that and the other thing. And when you're when you're trying to deliver a message and you don't feel comfortable in your own skin, it becomes that much harder to connect. So I, I don't think we should try to turn a bland person into a more charismatic person. Yeah. Work with who you have and make sure that he can connect to deliver the message. No, I was yeah. actually asking that if, if uh, people are... Um tired or exhausted of all the combat of, of Doug Ford, will he be an antidote to that if, if, uh, if you're, you're tired of the Doug Ford style? Yeah. Well, and, and, that, I, is, and yeah. that is the case. I think you saw it in Stephen Harper's perspective. People were just tired of his style of leadership in some yeah. cases, and they went to, they went to Justin Trudeau. Um, they were prepared to give Mulcair uh, a chance, and he was leading in the polls at the federal election, if you recall, up until the time when he made the mistake of, of being inauthentic and saying that he wants a balanced budget. Um, but, you know, <laughs> we also went through the, the issue of Frank Miller, who was the opposite, you know, plaid jackets and all this kind of I stuff. I remember and they, that. And they tried to put him into business suits, and it just but I think Karen is bang on on this, and it comes to authenticity. And, and I must say, with Stephen Del Duca, notwithstanding the political stripes, and I have known Stephen, and, I, and I'm a friend of Stephen's, um, but I'm also proud that as an Italian, you know, and I'm an Italian as well, that he actually ascended to being a leader of the Liberal Party and, and potentially a premier of the province. And I think from that perspective, I think that should be celebrated as well. But I, I would say with Stephen, I think he needs to be able to, um, in the self-deprecating humor that he gave at the speech that he gave about him not being charismatic, I think was was fun. And, and, and that's also helpful. Um, but it's the authenticity. If he can sort of convince Ontarians and voters that what you see is what you get, but here's what you're going to get from the perspective of policy issues, I think that'll probably drive mostly m- more things than anything. But the, the, the level is the connectivity. If you can't connect with voters, no matter if you are uh, charismatic as anybody or bland as anybody, if you can't make that connection, Tim Hudak was, a, was a, um, a, um, a, a case in point. He, on a one-to-one, people would say, and I experienced it, it was phenomenal. He was funny. He was, yeah. but, but in the public at the time, he was so scripted that people just didn't connect with him. And it, and it showed in two elections. He, he also suggested 100,000 layoffs, uh, right. which, 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 which nobody thought was a great idea. Like over 500,000 votes, right? Because everybody <laughs> knew somebody who was going to get laid off. <laughs> so yeah. it was part of the broader public sector. Right? That's right. yeah. But nonetheless, but yeah, no, I think it's authenticity and I think it's connectivity with the voter. Okay, let's move along. As I said, I really want to be talking about things other than uh, COVID-19. Interesting, uh, for, first of all, in, in the next segment, we're going to be talking to Councillor Josh Matlow, who has self 
isolated. But uh, he was at the Liberal Convention. I saw him there. Uh, John Capobianco is just uh, reaching for the hand sanitizer here. Just um, a mention of his name, I just thought I had to. Uh, yeah, I had to join you there. Most liberals know to avoid Josh like the plague, figuratively and literally. That's right. There's no risk of him infecting anybody at the Liberal it, Conference. N- nobody n- was close enough. Nobody came within the one meter. Uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting because at the convention, I don't get out in the field much anymore and I so I see a lot of people that I don't see very often and uh, there was the normal amount of you know cheek kissing and stuff but not with Josh you know there was a gender thing happening at this convention which is women were more inclined to do the elbow bumps whereas Mm -hmm. the men were much more machismo and the handshakes (laughs) and the hugs and yeah it was well no some men that I saw I mean they they came forward for the double kiss one of them being a doctor so (laughs) there I mean there I go okay (laughs) yeah interesting a few days before I saw a female friend who's who's a doctor, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I moved back when she came to hug me, and she was she was annoyed. She was not oh. happy that oh. I did that. So there you go. Um, I, but I, I must say, though, I, I was at an event recently, not the Liberal Convention, which had three thousand people, but I was at, a, at a, an awards event for a business uh, grouping uh, one morning last week, and there was about maybe eighty people. And it was for the first time I saw the elbow and the fist pumping, mm-hmm. and yeah. and people actually reflexively going out to shake somebody's hand, and somebody kind of recoiling. Yeah. And yeah. so it's the first time I saw it. And It's a little bit unnerving, to be honest, because I'm I'm a, a very much a hugger and a shake, a shake hands and, and whatnot. Uh, and and I think that it made you realize that you know you you can't put somebody else in that position so you have to sort of almost kind of say hey are you want to shake hands do you want to elbow yeah. bump? Do you, what do you want to do? so it's actually quite something that's, that's well happening. yeah no i i kind of had a uh, um i sort of had a way of resolving it in in my head but every i mean it changes by the day because i thought okay i will take a step towards people and kind of show that i'm i'm okay with it and uh but uh you know so balls in their court yep yeah but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange time. There's no question. Because yes. I, yeah. I think there's certainly a heightened level of panic for a, a risk that is still relatively low. Well, very, very, very low. low. Very, very low. Yeah, very, there, very there many, low. There are many. It's funny because there's, there's sort of everyone's worried, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't panic. We shouldn't panic. But I think we are kind of. It's too um, late. Yeah, we're it, there. I, I think there's still a fair degree of complacency out there as to what coronavirus and COVID-19 actually means. Not only in terms of our healthcare system, but also in terms of the economic impacts, which are being I wanted felt to in Asia, in Europe, in very significant ways. Get to that. I mean, uh, we just heard in question period the finance minister Rod Phillips basically saying he doesn't really know, and he's monitoring it. I mean, we're getting a, a provincial budget in two weeks, yeah. Yeah, and, and the feds are saying the same thing. They don't really know. They're watching it. Um, and and like, there's been a tech con- conference that was cancelled, yeah. and that's not even in the next upcoming weeks. Like I, I think it's a month and a half out yet. Yeah, and yeah. people are. I mean, Indian Wells has been cancelled. Concerts are being cancelled, and I know that people have been calling South it by Southwest, South by Southwest, yeah. in yeah. Austin, yeah. Texas. And so, you know, there was an article in the newspaper that was interesting: is is the cure worse than the disease? And I think that's a question that we don't have an answer to yet. But well, um, I I mean, you know. <laughs> For over a year, people have been saying, you know, the bull market's gone on too long. Yeah. We've, we're time for a, a, correction. a correction, at least a correction. This might be the thing that, that finally puts us in there. Because I remember at the end of 2018, 
markets were tanking, they came right back up. I don't know if they're starting to think about it because this morning at the open, TSX was up 500 points and then it went right back down. I mean, it's volatile. For sure. But all of these things, you know, yesterday, our chief medical officer of health said, don't go on a cruise, people. Italy is completely on lockdown. Israel, where they have 50 something cases. I mean, it's a small country. I mean, they have tens of thousands of people quarantined. And they said anybody landing from overseas is going to has to quarantine for 14 days. Well, that's shutting down their tourism industry is they're obviously in the, in the they're in the mitigation phase of this now which is to mitigate any further you know obviously so the lockdowns are happening and in Italy of course unfortunately uh, we're seeing that the whole the whole country is being locked down and I was at a, an Italian restaurant last night with some friends and and the owner of the Italian restaurant was saying that he was talking to family who live in Italy and it, they they he said that they told him that it's like a war zone like literally you can't you, you feel bad going out the door you know you feel like you're going to get sort of um, marked as a, as a bad person by doing that so there is that that fear, but I think in Canada, um, you know, we take a lot of our our leadership from the U.S. in some cases, just because of the size, not only in the markets, but it, but also politically. And that uncertainty that's happening there is kind of permeating into Canada, and it's causing some issues. I know in my firm that's in the communications, for our, our clients are getting a little bit more anxious. Mm-hmm. So we're getting a lot of clients saying, "Hey, I've got a national AGM coming up. I might have to cancel it." And in fact, some of them have already have canceled it because of it, and that will affect the economy. Oh, there's no question. Yes. There's there no question about it. There is absolutely no question about that. I mean, the the travel industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, presumably it'll come back, uh, but yeah. you, you know, I mean, again, the numbers of cases and and it, it doesn't help in the states that Donald Trump seems to be downplaying it. I saw one quote from him that said, uh, "People just want to hurt the stock market and make me look bad." I mean, <laughs> well, the other thing he said, which was kind of silly, was that, "Oh, it'll go away in the summer." Well, no, it might. It might. Flu, flu generally does. But generally does. But we, but we don't know. And if, and if that were the case, and we could demonstrate that's the case, and everyone could take a deep breath and continue on with their summer activities. But, mm. but, but we don't know that. So it's, uh, we just don't know how it's going to. But it will. It will. The good news it, it will is sort that, itself out. The good news is Canada is particularly well situated to deal with what is likely to be a, a pretty significant series of outbreaks across North America in the coming days and weeks. Um, the SARS experience of 2002-2003 taught our public health officials a lot about um, how to communicate properly to strike that right balance between getting people to take these issues seriously and... Um, and not causing undue panic. But at the same time, the real impact could very well be more economic than not. Assuming that our healthcare system is and our emergency wards aren't overwhelmed by people thinking they have COVID-19 and, and, uh, and simply uh, overwhelming our system, the, the real impacts are economic, which is to say impacts to supply chains, uh, with, with conferences are, are one small thing. Of course, the tourist industry is likely to take a hit. But this is the great unknown, right? Which is if you have large swaths of the Canadian economy that are effectively shut down as a result of a major outbreak across the continent, um, you know, to what extent can governments step in and offer meaningful assistance to keep these businesses afloat? And that is the great unknown at the moment. Yeah, but I, I think we can... It's often compared to SARS, but we don't actually recall and reflect back on the H1N1, which actually affected many more people, many more deaths, 
And uh, I don't, people don't, it doesn't, it's not on their collective conscience how when the vaccine became available, do you remember people were lining up and waiting for 24 hours so that they could get a vaccine for their child? And it was like, it was again, the sense, but now, but it's forgotten. Like people's collective consciousness. Yeah, now, now we have to beg people to take the vaccine. See, now we have all these, and maybe, maybe a silver lining to this will be. A vaccine is that, developed. And that, then, that, yeah. that people will uh, get on board, vaccines. appreciate the vaccines instead yeah. of having these, these crazies and dangerous Sorry, I called them crazies. But. <laughs> One good news Libby, I want to mention, though, is that unlike in the United States, where the issue has become enormously politicized, I mean, there was mm-hmm. one Republican congressman photographed with a, wearing a gas mask, and less than a week later, one of his constituents was dead from COVID-19. In Canada, we're clearly seeing a high degree of cooperation um, across the federal government, provincial governments, municipal governments, a lot of working together. Um, you, you know, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole have said some outrageous things, but they have kept well away from this issue. They intuitively understand that this is people's lives, and that's a real credit to the Canadian political system. Well, you know what? I think we still have to keep in mind, and you know, elderly people with 100%. underlying conditions are at risk, and we talk to a lot of those people here, so yeah. we're talking to them. But for most people, it's the sniffles, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and That's I think it. it's just being aware and, and just and, and the transparency of it. The, the whole, this whole issue, and the reason why it's not going so particularly well from a public perception perspective in the U.S. is that they don't seem to be transparent, or, or you know, the president saying things that are unfactually correct and is being corrected by their scientists. This kind of issue, <laughs> for a change, he's saying well, things that aren't factually these, correct. These <laughs> kinds of issues, these kinds of issues, have to be the scientists and the doctors have to be the ones kind of mm-hmm. saying what's going on, and the political leaders just have to be make sure that there's calm and there's calm. some level yeah. of, of transparency that's going on and also to make sure that there's regular briefings so that people are aware and that's happening provincially and i see it's happening federally as well it's interesting that the virus is the one thing that donald trump can't tweet away yeah and, yeah. and this may you know for all his of undoing. his smearing of his opponents quite effective from time to time uh this is the one thing that uh, may just take him down Okay, we've got to wrap things up. Just one quick thing before we do that. So uh, none of the teachers unions are going to strike on March break. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> surprise. Uh, maybe you, maybe you, after March break. Did you find it funny by half, the fact that just a week before they were saying, well, you know, not only because the government made some significant moves mm. on their negotiation by saying that they're going to make, they're going to have parents opt out of e-learning, yeah. they're going to yes. cut class sizes almost down to where it was before, that the only thing left on the table was compensation. And, and, oh, and by the way, that happened, and then March break was coming up, and they're going to stop job actions for two weeks. But they might. Resume them after March break. Yeah, after March break. Yeah, this is this is going to be bad for unless the unless we ban demonstrations because of the yeah. virus. Yeah. Who knows? There's not one person in Ontario that is looking at it that it's not involved in the unions, or whatever. That's saying, well, wait a second, that's awfully weird. Especially parents are saying, yeah. oh, that's funny that that's happening. Yeah, funny. Okay, uh, we've got to wrap things up. Uh, let's let's go across one more time. Twenty seconds each, Charles. Michigan, okay. <laughs> tonight, along with seven other U.S. states, and um, a very very high likelihood that Joe Biden will actually secure the Democratic nomination tonight. Okay, so they'll have a boring convention in the summer. <laughs> Karen? <laughs> yes, I, I think that we haven't actually seen the worst yet of the economic and um, social impact of the coronavirus. The physical impact is is going to unfold as it will, but I think the social impact and the uh, economic impact are still need to be managed, and, and quite frankly, in a better way than they have been to date. 
Just saying, keeping with Charles's uh, fascination with U.S. politics, I'm going to say this, and I think that Charles, Michigan's going to be important tonight, but more importantly is going to be the debate on Sunday, the first time that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are going to be f- fighting it out mano a mano without, without 10 or 15 other people. It'll be the first time that I think a lot of Americans are going to see the real Joe Biden because he's not going to be able to have one second, one minute uh, clips. Okay. I think they'll like the real Joe Biden. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, probably more likable than Bernie Sanders, or but not necessarily a better debater. Okay, we've got to wrap things up until next week, March break. Thank you so much, Charles Bird, Karen Stinson, John Capobianco. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.